Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, where we envision bottom-up, human-centered answers to the challenges imposed by the operating systems of top-down control and anti-human systems. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, and we celebrate the quirky ambiguity that keeps people from ever becoming predictable, and where anomalous behavior is the new resistance. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, open collectivist Pia Mancini. We want to see a lot of collectives trying and, and popping up in areas that, because they, this didn't exist before, they couldn't have any funding or any structure, they couldn't share their costs, they couldn't have this sort of collaboration that now is happening. Pia will be telling us about a new platform that will enable groups of working humans to find the others. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. thinking a lot about shame these days. Not because I'm particularly ashamed of anything, but because I've been seeing just how much shame keeps people from communicating effectively and forging solidarity with one another. Questions like, how much money do you make? We keep secret. You know, what, who did you vote for? Well, that's not a secret anymore. But how much money do you make? What's your, your gender? Wh- how do you masturbate? I mean, gosh, all these things that are so shameful or hidden or secret. I don't just mean discreet, but things that we're ashamed of. And, and why are things like that shameful? You know, especially money. Like, let's just look at that as a, an easy example. Why is it considered uncouth to say how much money you make, particularly if you're poor? Well, really, that dates back to the Middle Ages when the aristocracy got poorer than the middle class. 
all of a sudden the aristocracy stopped talking about how much money they made. Well, that's because they were people making more money than them. And when it finally did come out that, oh my gosh, the aristocracy is poorer than the nouveau riche, well, then they start calling them right, the nouveau riche. That's when they call them the bourgeois because, well, they may have more money, but they're not as classy as us. But they wanted to make the talking about money or revealing how much money people made something that was very verboten, something that was considered gauche because those who actually made the most money were no longer those who used to be in control. But on the second level, knowing how much money your coworker makes can actually create a kind of solidarity. You know, the more that workers don't tell each other what they make, the more you can control them. You tell one, well, you're probably making more than the guy next to you on the line, but don't tell him. Well, right, because then he's going to be mad at you that you make more money, or then they're all going to demand more money, and then you're not going to be making more anymore, or they're going to demand that you make less money. But transparency if you actually know what everybody else is making, then that starts to engender trust and connection and the ability to form a union or to do collective bargaining. So shame, really, the shame that you have at how much you make or what you do or who you are is really just to enable social control, whether it's about your sex life, whether it's about your health, whether it's about how well your kids are doing in school, or how much money you make. I mean, this is how cult leaders maintain control of their followers. They learn the secrets of the various members and then use those secrets against them. That's why Scientology uses that little, they have a little lie detector they call an e-meter, and they use it, the idea is that you're supposed to get clear once this little meter's not going, but they really just ask you more and more personal questions, and they see on the meter which areas are the most delicate so they can find out, oh, he's gay, or oh, she's this, and then they can use those secrets against you, which makes it harder for you to leave the cult without threat of blackmail. And it's always about some sexual proclivity or some identity issue. And I feel like that this repression of identity, this repression and, and shameful secrecy around who we are and what we make is also at the heart of identity politics. So yes, there's discrimination, discrimination against women, discrimination against people of color, but sometimes it's about identities that no one even knows exist. You know, de deviance itself is shameful. So the explosion that we're seeing today, and I would call it a positive explosion of new genders and sexual types and ways of understanding oneself in terms of one's identity, that breaks the shame. Our sense of shame is also maintained by a misunderstanding of what makes a team. You know, I understand that it's, it's simple middle school group dynamics for a group to need an enemy in order to feel its own cohesion. You know, our high school, our middle school comes together because there's the enemy middle school over there. Or this group of girls can feel like they're part of a thing because there's those group of girls that they don't include. And it's always based on the other or based on some sense of difference. And that's the easiest way to maintain a group dynamic, but it's a destructive one. It should instead be based on our common hopes, our common needs, our common vulnerabilities vulnerabilities. And we don't get that by enforcing shame, but by embracing openness. You know, September 
tense. 2001 was the height of openness as I experienced it. I mean, my gosh, from you know the 60s to the 70s to the 80s through the 90s and the early internet and rave and the psychedelic revival, there was a sense of openness, you know, that, that something was coming, a connectedness and an openness at a new level. Almost a, a, a fractal sensibility was taking over, that we were going to connect more intimately than we had ever been before. And then, of course, September 11th happened, and the openness dial started to move the other way. All of a sudden, people were then talking more about others. There's us and them. And Rightly so, I mean, or at least understandably so, because we had a fear of our very survival. And it led to all these increasing violations of our privacy. And at the same time, our concern for our privacy. There are so many discussions now, and I understand them about internet privacy, but what are we really hiding? You know, I mean, that's not the real reason to fear invasions on our privacy. The reason to fear them is totalitarian regimes and algorithmic prediction and manipulation of our behaviors, but not because they're going to know what turns you on or what your gender is or how much money you make. That's a very different story. You know, and that really only works when we have obsolete laws in other words, uh, pot's illegal and no one should know I'm smoking pot, or social shaming. Now, the culture wars that we're in today really are based and get their power by keeping certain kinds of things shameful, keeping boundaries intact, and keeping the weird people or boundary crossers somehow in the shadows. You know, not just gay and bi and trans, but interracial and international. I was just was thinking about the TV movie from when I was a kid, the movie Brian's Song, about uh, Brian Piccolo, this football player who, uh, who got cancer and died, and he had this great friend, Gail Sayers, who uh, was his friend through that period. And what made that movie so controversial back in the early 70s when it happened, and this is true, look at the news stories about it, it's that it was the first televised friendship between a black man and a white man. Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo. You know, until the 1950s, that was actually against the standards and practices for television. It was the, essentially the, the censorship board said, you're not allowed to show a black and a white friend on a TV show. And here was this television movie where they're in each other's hospital rooms and sitting on each other's beds, seeing each other's weaknesses without shame. And what excites me most about the internet and its sometimes forced openness and transparency are the possibilities for the dissolution of shame and the new bonds of solidarity that that allows. Our guest today is leveraging that ability. You know, Pia Mancini, founder of the Net Party in Argentina, co-founder of the direct democracy platform, Democracy OS, and now founder of Open Collective, a new platform to help collectives forge solidarity through transparent finance. What she's actually doing on a deeper level is allowing nonprofits to engage with one another 
openly. How much money do you have? How much money do we have? Where can we get other money in order to empower one another? You know, the organization of collectives, working groups, open source projects almost always gets stalled when it comes to money. And it's not that there's no money out there. It's just so hard to speak honestly and openly about it. And that's necessary for enabling a collective's power and distributing its prosperity. I'm Danny Wu, and I'm on Team Human. Hey, I'm Alex Rivetta. I'm on Team Human. I'm Caroline Jack, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sylvia Zia, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Ari Sirius, a.k.a. Ken Goffman, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens and online at teamhuman.fm. Our guest today is Pia Mancini from Open Collective. So tell me first, how did Open Collective start and what's the main goal? Okay, so Open Collective started um, about a year and a couple of months ago. And the goal was to enable what we call the intergeneration organizations. So organizations that are groups of people that have a shared purpose or a shared mission, but they're not either territorially based, so open source projects, for example, or large social and political movements that are global. Or they have, they can't really fit into the um, assumptions that governments have for organizations. So they can't really form a 501c3 or they can't have an LLC because it's not in their nature. They right. don't want to have a conversation about equity. They don't care who the president is or they have their side projects, right? So there's a lot of organizations that we realized um, and that we had ourselves that we couldn't fund. Because if we don't have a legal, we didn't have a legal entity, we couldn't have a bank account. Right. So we couldn't have collective funding. Yes, someone could give me money as an individual, but it didn't belong to me. You know, it belonged to the community, right? right. So how we fund, structure, and power these kinds of organizations is like the, the what we set out to do. Right. Now, what are some of the, what are like examples of the kinds of communities that you wanted to do this for? So the first one was political parties was the first okay. one, one of the first ones. That was from my experience building a political party. We were trying to have a strong impact on a local government. We built a political party to do it. And obviously the government wasn't interested in us doing anything locally. So right. they, didn't, they didn't allow our party, like they wouldn't approve our legal entity. So we couldn't have funding, so we couldn't campaign. And that's terribly right. unfair, right? And so if we could, <laughs> right? Because it's like you're trying to, you're asking to the status quo for permission to change right. the status quo. Like they have no incentives in helping you no. out, right? And there's no other way. Yes, we could have used, although this was 2013, so I don't even know if we could have properly used Bitcoin, right? Or any right. cryptocurrency. This is not now. Anyway, so that's sort of one of the examples that made us think about how we can build a platform or infrastructure for these types of organizations mm -hmm. to thrive and, you know, create a whole new economy and, and collaborate. Um, so that was one of them. The second one was a movement in Brussels called um, the Startup Manifesto. And it was a movement of people that just wanted to make sure that the startup ecosystem in Brussels sort of sucked a little bit less. Right. right. And so they 
they had like a thousand people that wanted to contribute and they started doing all of these things and they put together a best practices, a kind of white paper, they presented it to the government, like they were super successful. And one day they decided to print stickers. And they're like, all right, great, who's going to pay for the stickers? Uh, you know, we're all, you know, half of us are hackers. We'll just do a website, yeah. right, to collect money, and we'll use that money to print stickers. And then they realized they didn't have a bank account. And they couldn't have a bank account because they were just a group of people that wanted to do something. No legal entity behind it. And they can't just use one of their bank accounts? They can, but that has tax implications for the individual. The money doesn't really belong to the community if it's right. owned by someone. And also there's an issue of trust and transparency that it's, you know, it, it's, it's a burden, right? Right, it's, like with this show, with Team Human. So we're trying to get uh, listeners to make donations. And we put, oh, okay, we'll put a PayPal link on there. Well, who's PayPal? So it's my PayPal account. There you go. So then I take the money out and then put it in a, you know, a yeah. special account or something. But yeah. we don't have, or I could do what? Hire a lawyer and create an LLC? There you go. But I'm not a for-profit thing, so I can get a 501c3, and how much is that going to cost? And how long is it going to take for you to, to, to for get the IRS that. to get that, right? right? That's an, this is another case. We actually have um, a publication. It's called Between the Wires, and they do, public, they do interviews for programmers, so it's mostly very, very tech. Same story. Like the founder, uh, the girl that leads it, she's like, I don't want to use my bank account. Like That doesn't seem right, Like and it's a responsibility, mm -hmm. and... So now they're, they're a, we, we made them a collective, and now they have their dedicated page. So the way Open Collective works is it's a platform where we can create collectives, or collectives create themselves, actually. And then underneath that platform is a network of host organizations that act as their fiscal sponsors. From different countries. From different countries, in different verticals. And we're actually now playing with the idea of having wallets, like a Bitcoin wallet or an Ether mm -hmm. wallet being a host as well. The concept is that underneath there's this network of host organizations. So now you can, boom, create your collective, start receiving funding. All the transactions are transparent. So you share your ledger. What we also strive to do is to sort of remove the complexities of dealing with money and talking about mm -hmm. money by making all the transactions transparent by design. Like the only way of removing money from your collective is submitting an expense for being uh -huh. reimbursed or an invoice that the core team has to approve. And then the host base. And all of that is transparent, so you, you can see who, who make the donation, what are you um, using that money for. Many collectives are also starting to, to show their expenses. They don't even have money. They don't have donations. But they're like, we just want to show what it takes right. to do what we do. And we shouldn't run with the cost without at least other people being aware that what we do implies all of this well, right. effort. Now you start to cost. document... Exactly. We so, do have expenses. We're not just pocketing exactly, this. Exactly, exactly. Right. And, and in, in, in some way, what we, what we think is going to happen is like what happened with like sharing code at the beginning. At the beginning was just putting your code out there, right? right? But that enabled a new kind of collaboration that didn't exist until you could actually show your code, right? So by showing your ledger, by making your, your costs transparent, we, um, what we hope to see and what we think we'll see is new types of collaboration between collectives that didn't exist before because no one knew. Because it's almost like a financial GitHub. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good uh, Yeah. There you go. Um, Which is fun. And then you use the APIs of everything out there, of Venmo and PayPal and Patreon or whoever is open enough and so people can contribute from any... Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So, for example, we have Threadless, right, for that they print T-shirts and things right. like that. So many open source projects now have Threadless shops, online shops. They sell their apparel and the money goes to their collective, right, automatically. So we set all of that up. Right. Or Google is actually paying some, giving money to some open source projects to their collective and not to the individual that it's author of the open source project because it's a com it's a community effort. Right. It's not just one person, right? So we're very big in open source pro in open source in general. I think the reason is because this is a it was a clear pain for open source. For I don't know Netflix, Spotify, like a gazillion companies. Like you you name any company, they I would like to say like maybe ninety percent of their products are based on open source software. It's in their interest that they are it's sustainable in right. the long term. And it's not like they don't want to give money to open source. They just don't have where to send it. Right. Whose is this? Who's, yeah, exactly. Who's Webpack? Who's Babel? You right. Know? But then there's, so there's governance questions then. So is there a way or do you just integrate it with something else? So now if you have 300 people working on an open source project and now they're getting funded through the platform and they want to make a decision about something, can they do that through the platform too? Not at the moment. The idea is not to do everything, is to do... But let them do that on Lumio or something or, else. Or not, yeah. just integrate with CoBudget or right. Lumio or Democracy Earth or whatever, you know, like for sure. Like what we want to build is, um, and the way we see Open Collective is like, it's, it's infrastructure. Um, open API where you can plug in anything. So for example, we have projects that are starting to sell services to the collectives, whether that's advertising for their collectives in GitHub or they review the commits, for example, and things like that. Right. Because now they have a way to make that transaction that before they couldn't, right? Before it was someone saying, oh, I can help review your code. But now it's like I can sell you my service, you know, to the collective. Directly, so it's not to the maintainer, or it's not, you know, like the collective is actually, you know, paying for a service. Or we started to, on the, the flip side, collective started to sell office hours and support to companies. So we're building a sustainable model right. for open source, right? And then uh, do you take a percent or something yeah. if it comes through? Yeah. So open collective takes a 5%, and the host organization can take another 5% or 7% or 0% or it's their call, essentially. Right. Because you get assigned a host in your nation or that's somehow simpatico with your goals. Yes. So at the moment, it's very manual, that process. It's not like you randomly get assigned. We kind of talk to you and talk to them, etc. But yeah, so we partner with a host in Mexico and every collective that shows up from Mexico, we talk to them and Hacker Garage is the host. And they're like, hey guys, do you guys want to host these? Do you guys want to be hosted by them? Yes, all right, done. So at the moment, there's still that element that we, that human element yeah. <laughs> that we connect collectives to hosts. But the way we see it growing is automating this process as much as possible, having all the hosts and then you can apply to a host or a host can say like, I'd like to host all collectives in I don't know, open science, you know, because that's my interest. Well, and ultimately you can probably uh, sell guidance. You can sell consulting too. So if someone doesn't know how to do any of the finance for their organization, they hire somebody mm -hmm. and you set them up. Yeah. Yeah. So an interesting case is women who code, for example, yeah. women who code is a 501c3, right? But they have networks of women who code around the world. Many cities around the world have a women who code group mm -hmm. node. 
before Open Collective, the way they managed that was very inefficient because the, the local groups couldn't raise money locally because they needed, right. again, a legal entity in Chennai, in Taipei, in Austin, in here, in New York, you name it. And so now Women Who Code is the host of all their Women Who Code networks around the world. They receive the funding for all of them. They manage their expenses. They can add funds to the collective. So they receive a big grant and they said like, oh, we're going to divide this between all the European women who go. So it's just clicking a button and doing that. So it's very efficient for them to manage now their financials. So where are your, to use a, a, a startup word, where are your pain points mm -hmm. right now? And what, what can I or even the 10,000 team humanites listening do to help? So I think that what we most need is interesting cases. Like, people to create collectives and to create hosts. So, for example, we are looking for hosts in Europe, we're looking for hosts in Asia, we're looking for hosts in Australia. And so organizations that say, I want to make a living out of this. I want to be able to host collectives, take a fee from the donations, manage their collectives, and be the umbrella organization for all of this ecosystem. Well, that's interesting. So there's, like, in New York, there's a, we put him on the show, DC Vito has a uh, 501c3 called The Lamp. And the lamp is dedicated to promoting media literacy and digital media literacy for young people mostly mm -hmm. in schools. So they teach them this is how TV ads work. And, but there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other media literacy efforts, smaller ones out there, that they would be more than happy to be the umbrella organization for, provide some uh, mentorship yep. to the ones that... Mm -hmm. are, and also help, help them understand where do they need... Where are the gaps to plug in? So a young place will say, oh, we want to teach kids about uh, how to make YouTube videos for political causes. And they could say, oh, well, there's this group in Dallas, and that's who you should have up with. So the LAMP then, as an organization, would, could would make be, some money too. Yeah, Because they'll exactly. get a little piece yeah. of everything that's coming yes. in. Without a, it's not a pyramid scheme because it's just one layer. Yeah, it's one layer. And, um, and they can choose the percentage depending on how much overhead and admin costs they have from doing this, and also depending on how much mentorship or branding or infrastructure or you know Whatever framework they, they provide. Yeah, and exactly. it's also, I guess, it's a way for them to subsidize the 501c3 that they invested exactly. in. Exactly. Because it could have cost them 100 grand before exactly. they were done with it. Absolutely. And, and it's also a way of growing their own ecosystem by allowing for smaller organizations, smaller projects to also receive funding and thrive and test ideas. Right. right? And I suppose they could also say, look, we want to take, you know, $100 a month for a year and then you're done. Mm -hmm. In other words, just to, if they just want to make you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand yeah. dollars total yeah. by doing this. They can put a time limit. Absolutely, we have hosts that don't take any money. Um, well, if you're the Ford Foundation or something, exactly. what are you going to take money from some exactly. bowling league? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I don't know Docker. It, that's a company, right? Yeah. Uh, Docker has now uh, many Docker user groups, like meetups from around the world on Open Collective. Um, and they are the host, and they take zero fee, obviously, uh -huh. from them. Their, their, their goal is to just to incentivize the discussion and meetups and, and help all these user groups have a bit more structure, right? So, and, and that's what we mean by being the infrastructure. We really we, we want to see a lot of collectives trying and, and popping up in areas that, because they, this didn't exist before, they couldn't have any funding or any structure. They couldn't share the costs. They couldn't have this sort of 
collaboration that now is happening. So for us, it's like it's, it's kind of building a, a browser on top of governments, right? Like removing all of that friction from like the governments are the operating systems. You know, you don't really need to know what's underneath. Yeah. You just want to operate at that level of the stack, right? You just need want to connect there. Um, and that's what we provide, right? But there's underneath is a whole infrastructure that there are the 501c3s and companies that do connect to the governments. They are compliant. Right. They pay the taxes. They, you know, they, they keep all the transactions in their books, et cetera. Right. I mean, from a team human perspective, the, the existing structures are almost uh, are almost designed to prevent these human scaled enterprises from participating in economic activity absolutely absolutely because it made sense right when they, they were created they needed some sort of they needed to create an environment where you could collaborate right before the internet I mean for, you know and you, they needed some previsibility and they needed some sort of um, five-year plan kind of thing, because that's how they organ they helped organize society. Right. Uh, but with the internet, that radically changed. Like, we don't need those environments to collaborate anymore. We can collaborate in, you know, many other ways, like um, online or, right? And so we have tools now to organize. We have tools to collaborate. We have tools to connect to one another. Like, we, can we need to be able to find, to fund those efforts and, and give them a little bit of structure that the current, the legacy institutions do not provide because they were designed for another time. Right. I mean, in, in a best case scenario, you end up creating something almost uh, like, the next, like the next generation of Mondragon, say. So instead of it having to be a for-profit, I mean, Mondragon is a for-profit cooperative, mm -hmm. essentially, to say, oh, no, now we can actually kind of honeycomb this thing for nonprofits. And it doesn't mean you don't make money. You get yeah. salary. It's right. just you don't have shares that you sell for yeah. a profit to some yeah. other group of investors. Actually, look, for example, one of the, um, of the core, the author and one of the core contributors of this open source project called Webpack that is very hot at the moment, he just quit his job. And he's now being paid out of his work on Webpack because they're raising so much money on Open Collective. And Open Collective enabled that, right? So it's not like you don't, get paid you just the community decides you know pays you now you you work for your passion instead of working for your job and for us that is like we're thrilled by things like that when, whenever we see that happening on open collective for us it's like well this is this is where we want to go right and so I th we think that that's also the way you scale right but it's hard for a lot of people these days it's hard to imagine working without getting traditional forms of equity. Mm -hmm. Because they think, well, what about when I retire? What about, don't I own anything? Yeah. Well, maybe there's a, there's a service there to be made, right? right? Perhaps. Perhaps. I'm arguing the opposite, though. That, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, save money from your salary, but the, the whole point is to keep it liquid. That mm -hmm. you, you work for a thing in real time. It sort of it keeps your business in RAM rather yeah. than ever going to the hard drive. Yeah, but also like things like insurance, for example, like portable insurance and things like that, right? There's a whole sort of economy that I think mm -hmm. can happen and can start being created when you put collectives at the center of the economy instead of companies. Right? right. So because you need different services for the collectives, because it's a different work arrangement. So I think that that's what we want to see, like a, a lot of services. So that's what I was saying, like we don't want to do everything. We just want to build infrastructure for this to happen. 
right? And if someone says like, hey, look, we have all these um, engineers now getting paid from their collectives, maybe they need some portable health insurance, right? And so, or something that is mutualized among many different projects. And now we can do it because the scale is um, possible. I don't know. You know, right. all, of, all of I think that there's a whole new economy that is going to take place because of this. Right. So, and you think of those more not as things you do, but almost like browser extensions. Exactly. That's exactly it. Like plugins. Extensions on Open Collective. We don't want to. Th- we just want to alla- enable that. Right. Yeah. No, it's fascinating, and I think that um, again, the, the collective being the the human economic unit. Right. Of right. this economy, instead of the traditional firm. Either the company or the atomized individual. Exactly. You know, where I'm supposed to join freelancers union and get my yeah. own this and my own that. Yeah. And that's pretty lonely and horrible. It, it, it's hard. Right? So when you put the, a community, a collective at the center of this, um, then there's um, so many things that can happen out of this. When you start imagining um, collectives trading with each other exactly. and going in on projects together. And yep. Yeah, that's, that's what we, are, we want to see more and more. Cool. And then you moved, you, you're not from Argentina. I am you're, from Argentina, you yes. Are. Yes. Yeah. And now you live in New- living in New York. I live in New York. Living now. the dream. Yeah, well, I was actually, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like Buenos Aires very much, but yeah. yeah. Um, I was living in San Francisco and um, moved to New York uh, very recently. Yeah. And you're going to, well, you don't have a base, is there a base of operations? We're kind of headquartered here, whatever mm-hmm. that means, but really there's like a bunch of us People just on working on this. People around yeah. the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. Is, are there enemies yet? Have there, has there, I hate to use a word like that. Are there mm-hmm. people or institutions that are, feel antagonized by what you're doing? Um, I think that our, the, sort of the biggest, um, not enemy, but whatever, it's the governments and the old system and doing ways in um, IRS and regulators and not understanding why on earth a group of people are need money as a community instead of, you know, having an LLC that that's the box. Right. And are you in somehow are you subverting the intention of this legal framework? Yeah, exactly. You know, abusing the five one C three of a umbrella organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we are not. It's like what we do is legal. We're just forcing it a little bit. Yeah. Yes. And and and. And so it's it's fine. We haven't had any problems. We have, you know, we, we have to have lawyers, and and so they're okay with it. I think that's the the biggest sort of pushback, if ever, we're gonna feel it from that, from not really understanding how come there's five people from around the world. One is in China. One is in um, Helsinki. The other one in New York. They're doing something. They're having money together, but they're not an organization. So what are they? You know, well, they're just a community doing things. You know, well, that doesn't run very well. <laughs> right. Only Pepsi's allowed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the ask is for hosts and for collectives to come on board and experiment with us. Like we, we want to try this with different networks. For example, I, I knew that it's not fully launched yet, but it's fine to to say. It's DM25 is a big pan-European political movement. And again, it's pan-European. So where are they going to be based? Right in... Right. <laughs> where? No, in Brussels. Are they gonna, they're not the EU, you know? They're just a political movement that are trying to rethink the way Europe is organized. So, And so they're now an open collective. 
And um, they want to allow any city to start raising funds and have their own budget and manage that in a very distributed way. So those kind of experiments for us are extremely exciting because that's, that's where we see the world going. And what about little local ones? I mean, they still have a place on the platform, yeah. I think. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Like because they have the same clubs. problem. But yeah. school clubs, for example. Like, school clubs, they, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. Like they want to have some money. They want to give transparency about how they use it. They need to fund their local cinema club, right. you know. Or and they're going to pass through and then give it to the next, in two years, it's going to exactly. be a whole group of people. Exactly. So then how do you maintain the, yeah. the structure of the entity when the humans are going to change? That's exactly right. And, and, and the, the current system expects to have a board that approves a change of the president that someone else takes on board, you know. And, and that doesn't just doesn't fit. It's out of sync with, with how we organize now. And also trust and transparency, right? Bringing a lot of transparency to how we uh, spend money for our projects. I think it's important as well. Um, when we started, and like one of the things we we learned the hard way was that it, it's it's more difficult to spend money than to raise it. You know, we weren't expecting that, but how to spend money on what? Is it okay to spend money? Is it okay to receive money from companies or sponsors? Should we receive a membership fee? Should we not? Like that conversation is very complicated mm. for 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 especially for volunteer communities. So I think that. We, we build everything transparent by design to enable that conversation to happen from the get-go and have the tough conversations at the beginning. And then and I think that that's how you build healthier communities. Right. Well, we're so entrained to... Uh, we have almost shame and privacy around money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. exactly. And that just empowers the bad guys. You absolutely. Know? Absolutely. So transparent ledger for everyone. Like, there's no closed collectives. <laughs> it's just... Open. You want to receive money? It's going to show up. You're going to spend. You want to spend money? It's going to show up in your ledger for everyone to see. Right. Because if you're going to if you're going to hold on to the idea that all money is corrupt and will corrupt you absolutely, you're going to be very poor. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be very hard for you to do things. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So thanks for this. Thanks okay, for doing this. Welcome. This is a fun. Uh, it's a it's a, a yeah. fun project. Mm -hmm. We're very excited about this, to be honest. And um, yeah, there's three of us. <laughs> so uh, we're very lean and um, we multitask like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Team Human, a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens. You can find out more about our show, our guests, and ways to find the others and ways to help us survive at teamhuman.fm. This show is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. Stephen here. Thanks for joining Team Human this week. We began with music from Mike Watt, an actual needle drop from his color vinyl LP, Hyphenated Man. In the middle of the show, we featured music by Team Human guest, Are You Serious? And right now you're listening to Fugazi. Shout out to our friends in Cardiff who are hosting another Team Human meetup this week. Let us know of your Team Human meetups and other actions you're planning. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.